So good evening, church. Here we are. It's Maundy Thursday. It's Maundy Thursday, and we are with Jesus and the disciples in Jerusalem. It's Maundy Thursday, and we have just heard Jesus' great commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. It's Monday Thursday, the day on which we move from the supper Jesus had with his beloved friends in the upper room, the meal at which he tenderly washed their feet, to the celebration of the last Eucharist before Easter, to the procession of the reserved sacrament to the altar of repose, where people will keep watch all night, and finally, to the stripping of the sanctuary and the altar as we enter into the great silence of the long night Jesus spent alone in prison before his trial and crucifixion the next day. There is so much that is rich and intriguing and perplexing and paradoxical and also so very human in this complicated unfolding story. Theologians and mystics like to remind us that the stories we tell the most often may not be completely factually true and yet are always true at a deeper level. This story of Jesus' betrayal, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection is one such story. It's a story that speaks to our hearts here and now because we are experiencing the realities that it affirms here and now. We are living embodiments of those very realities here and now. At this moment in the story, at the supper with Jesus, the disciples are literally on the threshold of the rupture of everything they think they know. They are right at that tipping point when events will spin completely out of control only a few hours later. How familiar does that sound to our ears right now? Five years ago, in November of 2016, we were at just such a place. Two years ago, in the early days of March 2020, we were at just such a place. And two months ago, at the start of February of this year, we were at just such a place. It's very clear, however, that in John's gospel, unlike the others, 
unlike the rest of them, unlike the disciples, Jesus knew exactly what was going to come. And so he chose to use this night to model for them how to be, how to live in a world that does not always make rational sense. He knew they were about to encounter such a world. Very soon, they would come to face-to-face in the starkest way possible with a world that always, always insists on first asking, what's in it for me? Jesus knows he has to offer them a radically different paradigm. He's been doing so throughout his ministry, but he needed to be even more clear in these last hours. This other paradigm was servant leadership, and he modeled it for them that this night, not only with his words, but also with his actions. He chose to show them how to live into kenosis, the process of self-emptying that does not count the cost or ask what might be paid back to the one who gives. He chose to show them full surrender even before that surrender would be required of him by the circumstances of the next day. And he asked them to join him in that place of grace, in the place of abundance, in the place of real life. Listening to the exchange between Jesus and Peter, when Jesus had already taken off his outer robe and put a towel around himself, we hear the shock in Peter's voice at the radical act of humility by his teacher. And Peter refuses to allow his teacher to wash his feet. You will never wash my feet, he says. And we hear Jesus answer, unless I wash you, you will have no share with me. So often we hear this preached as a rebuke of Peter. Our favorite straw man, Peter, still doesn't get it. But could we hear it differently this year? Could we hear it instead as Ed has so beautifully framed for us many times recently as an invitation, an invitation to go deeper, to draw closer to God, a way that God is saying to us, I see all of you, even the parts of you which you most want to hide the parts that you think you have to cover up because they make you not worthy. And I love you, always. Let my actions speak. Let them reassure you that you are worthy. You are beloved. In her extraordinary first book, titled This Here Flesh, Author Cole Arthur Riley 
notices that we witness a similar loving action by God right at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible in Genesis. She lifts up an overlooked moment when God becomes a seamstress, and you know, that speaks to my heart, <laughs> to make clothes for the newly consciously naked Eve and Adam. God's own self kneels in the dust and sews clothes for them. God humbles God's self, modeling a love that is so deep and so wide that it is willing to be humbled in order that Adam and Eve can stand unashamed again with God. God says with God's actions, I understand you. Here is how I show my tenderness. This is grace. This is how we love. I bring this up to remind us that the God of the Hebrew Bible is the same God that we know, the same loving God that Jesus called Abba. We have to name this and consciously remember, especially in Holy Week, because historically and shamefully, too often Christians have left their sanctuaries after Good Friday services and literally killed Jews. Cole Arthur Riley goes on to say, people say we are unworthy of salvation. I disagree. Perhaps we are very much worth saving. It seems to me that God is making miracles to free us from the shame that haunts us. Maybe the same hand that made garments for a trembling Adam and Eve is doing everything he can that we might come a little closer. I pray her stitches hold. Our liberation becomes, begins with the irrevocable belief that we are worthy to be liberated, that we are worthy of a life that does not degrade us. When you believe in your own dignity, or at least someone else does, it becomes more difficult to remain content with the bondage with which you have become acquainted. Her words echo Jesus's own, the ones of the great commandment, Jesus is telling us the same thing, that we are beloved as we are and are worthy of salvation as we are. That when we enter into kenosis, we also see others and love them as they are. Jesus is also saying this, don't hide from me behind your shame. Don't push me away because you think you are unworthy. You are always worthy. You are always beloved. And here's the key thing. 
Unless you allow me to love you as you are, then you cannot offer that solace and salvation to others. You cannot bear witness to the irreplaceable and incredible beauty of each of God's other children, each of whom is equally flawed and equally beloved, unless you yourself are willing to receive the tenderness of God's love for you, to internalize that love within yourself. Because we cannot give what we have not allowed ourselves to receive. So this story is Jesus helping us learn to receive his love. So many of John's stories include foreshadowing. Mary of Bethany, in her own moment of kenosis, anointing the feet of Jesus and foreshadowing this foot washing and also the funeral anointing that never gets to happen on Easter morning. Lazarus being called out of the tomb, foreshadowing Easter again. And here Jesus telling Peter to let him wash his feet, to let Jesus bear witness to Peter's humanity and to the shame of the betrayals that Peter will very soon be harboring. Jesus does so by literally cleaning the dirt from Peter's feet because he knows that in less than 24 hours, Peter will feel eaten alive by the shame of those three betrayals before dawn. And so he offers Peter the forgiveness now. He allows Peter to experience that grace-filled balm now in his actual flesh, because the memories that we store in our flesh, in our bodies, never leave us. It is a moment of such tenderness and blessing. It is God kneeling on the ground and holding us so gently, beckoning us closer, reassuring us that all shall be well. There is no doubt in my mind that every one of us, like Peter, harbors some secret shame that aches for the healing grace of Jesus' loving hands on our feet. So this Holy Week, offer that up to God, the God who already knows all about it. Accept the loving invitation of a God who willingly kneels before us to wash our feet. Welcome the grace. Amen.